In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hello there and welcome to episode number 588 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell and with me is another Sarah. Today my guest is Sarah Weinman, who I always call the original Sarah W. We are going to talk about true crime, a genre that I absolutely cannot read. <laughs> we are going to talk about true crime and how true crime can be a catalyst for social change why people, especially white women, are obsessed with true crime. And we look at the genre as a whole, exploring what true crime can do better ethically and socially. Plus, we talk about Sarah's latest book, Scoundrel, which has a very surprising to me literary angle for true crime. Now, obviously, if we are talking about true crime, we are going to be talking about specific cases. We talk about it in a larger context, sort of socially and ethically. But when we mention specific cases, when possible, we also name the victims. We also talk frankly about the mental health costs of doing this kind of writing. So if that is not something that you can put in your brain, I completely understand. And I just wanted you to know at the very beginning so you can take care of yourself. Hello and thank you to our Patreon community for keeping me going each week, for making sure that every episode has a transcript. A lot of people have joined the Patreon and that is so great. Thank you. Hello to Alex W. who joined recently and I have a compliment for Kim. Yesterday, a few people you know were reminded by their social media of that absolutely perfect time they had with you. And every one of them hopes to experience that much fun with you again as soon as possible. You are people's favorite Facebook memory, is what I'm saying here. If you would like a compliment of your very own or you would like to support this here program, please have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. 
And speaking of compliments, wow, I asked very humbly and repeatedly, and I'll admit I was a little whiny about it, that I had reviews on Apple and then they all disappeared and I was super bummed about it. But whoa, hello, I got reviews. Thank you so much. Holy cow. Everybody left these lovely, lovely reviews. And I am going to share some of them because they made me so happy. For example, user, I'm going to say that this is Grinder Mike or maybe Grinder Mich, but either way, I'm currently listening to the back catalog of episodes starting in 2012 and have just reached 2014. The show is tremendous fun. The host is personable and I find it very informative, even though I'm not a romance reader. Thank you so much. I also love this review from Veronica Snape, which is a fabulous name. I've been listening to this podcast since 2015. Sarah is a wonderful interview and the conversations she has with the guests always provide thoughtful and entertaining insights. If you have taken the time to review the show, oh my goodness, you have completely made my day. You can probably hear how red my face is. It's a little weird for me to read compliments about myself into a microphone, but it means so much to me. Thank you so, so much. I have to stop talking about myself now. I might explode from embarrassment. So yeah, let's do, let's do the show. On with the podcast. I interrupt you myself to bring you myself. Here are the specific timestamps at which we discuss specific cases and names. At 13 minutes 45, 19 minutes 19, 24 minutes 24, and 32 minutes 43. So at 13, almost 14, almost half past 19 minutes, almost 24 and a half minutes, and almost 33 minutes, we talk about specific cases, things that happen. We talk about the death of young people, some children. And I just want you to know if that's the part we need to skip, those are the timestamps you should be aware of. Okay, now we're actually going to start the podcast. I can't actually identify the timestamps until all the pieces are in place. It's a, it's an editing thing. Thank you for your time and for your caring of yourself. That's very important. On with the podcast. I am Sarah Weinman. I am the author of The Real Lolita and Scoundrel, which are nonfiction books about crime. And most recently, I edited an anthology called Evidence of Things Seen, True Crime in an Era of Reckoning. You might also know me because I write the crime and mystery column for the New York Times Book Review. And you are the OG Sarah W. on Twitter. Also, <laughs> yes. Whenever I used to see Which you is as, dying, but whatever. I know. And I'm so bummed about it. Like, that was the one I invested my time and my words in. And now it's just being tanked by a... Sarah, I joined in like 2006. Right? And I, I started posting for the Edgar Awards in April of 2007. And MWA actually got mad at me because oh they didn't understand gosh. this whole concept of live tweeting. Because in 2007, who live tweeted? They Nobody. got mad. <laughs> they got mad. They're like, "You're you're you're posting information before it's out there." I'm like, "You just no, set it to just, a room, right?" And now, of course, everyone live tweets and no one blinks. But oh. that's how long I've been on Twitter. <laughs> wow! Congrats on your book, Evidence of Things Seen. Thank you. I think it's very cool to edit an anthology. Will you please tell me everything about this? So this is not my first anthology rodeo. No. In fact, <laughs> I've been publishing and editing anthologies for about a decade. The first one that I edited was called Troubled Daughters, Twisted Wives, yep. which was stories from the trailblazers of domestic suspense. And they were short stories by women crime writers from about the early 1940s to the mid-1970s. And I'd wanted to work on that project all those years ago, 
because I love crime fiction and always will. It's my first and greatest literary love. And I just felt like we knew a lot about cozy writers and the golden age of detective detective fiction writers Mm -hmm. and the more hard-boiled noir school. But there were all these writers who just couldn't be categorized in either sphere. And they were sort of building up a third way. So I got to read all sorts of short stories and I requested permission to reprint them. And I kept hearing stories from editors I worked with then and then later were like, I hate permissions. It's the worst thing in the world. I actually enjoy them. Yeah. Because to me, it's detective work. You're trying to figure out who has the rights to a story or a book or an essay or a feature. And then you negotiate. And it turned out that I learned how to negotiate pretty well working on that anthology. But also more to the point, that was the first time that I thought of an anthology as an argument that you don't just put together a bunch of stories in a book and say, hey, here's an anthology, because that's not going to sell. Yeah, What is going to sell and what is going to stay in some kind of collective cultural consciousness is when an anthology has a purpose, when it has a point. So with Troubled Daughters, all those years ago, it was, who are the women crime writers who are doing domestic suspense, which wasn't quite hard-boiled, wasn't quite golden age detective fiction, but it was very much a reflection of society during particularly the American and British mid-century. I then went on and edited two volumes for the Library of America called Women Crime Writers of the 40s and 50s. So that felt like a natural extension of what I was doing before. And that was, in a way, a much easier lift because the Library of America people did all that permissions and back-end stuff. Yeah, I just a lot had less to argue- email there, right? <laughs> oh, there were still plenty of emails, but I had to get in in the room and talk about which books I loved and argue with the folks at LOA. And sometimes I won the argument, sometimes I didn't, and that was okay. But the collection, I mean, they do amazing jobs of just putting those books in keepsake volumes that you want on your shelves forever and ever. So it's still a real thrill that I was able to edit that collection. That's very cool. So then, so then fast forward, I've published my first nonfiction book. And I realized that I want to edit an anthology of nonfiction crime writing because a number of years ago, there used to be a series called Best American Crime Reporting. So if listeners may be familiar with Best American Short Stories or Best American Mystery Stories, now Best American Mystery and Suspense, Best American Essays, but there used to be Best American Crime Reporting, mostly, I think, series edited by Thomas H. Cook. And that was around for, for a few years. Yeah, Otto Penzler was involved in that too, who is the proprietor of the Mysterious Bookshop and very much a figure in the mystery world, also the owner of of the bookstore. So it lasted a few years and then it went away. And I thought I missed it, but I also, again, wanted to do an anthology as argument of what type of true crime writing did we see in the aftermath of the first season of Serial, which came out in October of 2014. Yeah, which became such a cultural phenomenon. And I think really introduced a lot of people who wouldn't have thought of themselves as consumers of true crime to this genre. So that led to Unspeakable Acts, which came out in the summer of 2020. And of course, launching any kind of book in 2020 was a very weird experience. All the events were virtual. 
but it did really well because people were inter- interested in it and it went into like a fourth or fifth printing. I can't keep track. Hell yeah. I still get, but after I finished the work on what became my next nonfiction book, Scoundrel, which came out last year, came out in February, did all the promotional stuff through about April. And then I finally had some headspace to do this anthology, which became Evidence of Things Seen. So this is all a super long-winded journey of how this came into being, which was that where unspeakable acts ask the question of what does true crime writing look like post-serial, this anthology asks the question, how has true crime writing changed in the aftermath of a pandemic, social justice protests, and though that came as I was working on it, not when I sold the anthology, all of the resulting backlashes to how we handled the pandemic, how racial justice was treated, the rollback of reproductive rights, the fact that we see like books being banned everywhere. It's a very fraught time. I mean, it's always a fraught time, but now it just feels extra more so because frankly, I don't think anyone is okay. And that's even more true, but certainly in the last three years, that's come into play. And so what that means is taking a longer view and a broader view of what true crime can be and looking at it instead of from individual cases or individual people, but from a much more systemic and holistic way, yeah. that was much more interesting to me. So I wanted to seek out stories and essays and features that best reflected this. You, you tweeted recently, the longer I write and report about crime, the more sensitized I get, which really grabbed my attention because the, another thing that's happened since the pandemic is that amateur true crime investigations on social media have become profitable. It's, yes, they have. It's I profitable know. for people on YouTube to be like, I'm going to solve this murder that's 30 years old. And then they go start like knocking on people's doors and invading people's privacy who probably don't want to talk about this horrible thing that happened to them. And the thing that I read the most about in in terms of like, wow, this is a really interesting, like everyone wants to be serial now. Everyone wants to be as big as serial was and get a piece of that algorithm money. The pushback is deeply desensitized to the people who have died and who were harmed by whatever case you're investigating, whether it was last week or 30 years ago, you are unearthing harm. And some people just really don't seem to care. Like they seem completely indifferent to the outcome of their of their actions. It's really startling to me. And the and the the feedback is always like, oh, we're so desensitized to crime. Um, which I find astonishing because I can't even read it. Like I can't read true crime. I can't read about crime. Because at three in the morning, my brain would be like, listen, let's think about that for about two hours. How does that sound? Really? I'd rather do anything other than that, but that's what my brain's gonna do. And you also said the longer that you're engaged with true crime, the more sensitized you get. At least the crime writers who write nonfiction, yeah, the ones that I know and the ones that I talk to the most, we all feel this. Yeah. And I, I think that getting more sensitized is a natural byproduct of the work that we do, but it's also how we do so well. Yes, that's and very I true. think it's because you have to bring a sense of empathy and moral culpability and a real responsibility that the longer I work on, the more I'm having to reinvent for myself. Like when I first started doing journalism in the crime nonfiction space, I still remember, I think the first big story that I wrote 
And looking back, I, I remember unearthing it not long ago and just cringing because I was in my late 20s and I didn't know what I was doing. And it was on, um, at the time he was still unidentified. It was the boy in the box case. And now we know, have since learned that he was a little boy named uh, Augustus Zarelli in Philadelphia. So he, uh, his remains were found in 1957. It was clearly murder. And it really captivated the city and to, to a, a large degree, the nation. So I wanted to write about this case for the 50th anniversary. But I still, looking back, I just felt like I was stumbling all over myself. I was repeating just what had been written. But I also even then had a sense of you have to treat people with real care and coming I was trying to come at this story, trying to understand what had happened and who might have been involved. And essentially that this isn't a lurid spectacle, it's a tragedy. And I think realizing how many crime stories are tragedies with full complexities is really important. Yeah. So with respect to the amateur sleuth thing, it's interesting you bring that up because I think that delineates the ongoing true crime moment dating to serial, which I always say has lasted so much longer than I expected. Yeah. When Unspeakable Acts came out in 2020, I thought it was going to be over. And then I'm doing this other evidence of things seen and we're still in it. And it's like, what is going on? Which I think is a testament to just how durable and perennial true crime as a genre is that yes. people are constantly just fascinated by spectacle they rubberneck. I mean, it's the classic case of you're in, you're driving and you see a car accident and you want to look and see what happens. Yeah. People want to peer at extreme behavior, but also step back from the abyss and think, oh, that wouldn't happen to me. Or I wouldn't, if I made different decisions, I wouldn't travel down this re extreme road. But if I made different decisions yet more, that I could be capable of murder. So there's always this tension between staying on the right side of morality and then crossing over. But I think what distinguishes the current moment from past moments is the sense of being active participants, that it isn't just that you listen to serial, it's that you could then log on to Reddit or a, a message board or Discord server and not just discuss a case, but feel invested in proving law enforcement wrong, in unearthing material that a podcast or a documentary or a book didn't we're starting to see some of that, especially now that a killer has been apprehended or suspect has been apprehended in the Gilgo Beach case. Yes, I've been watching your your tweets about this because I remember that case being discussed ages ago. And because it's been unsolved for so long and because the reasons for why it was unsolved, I think, date to just ineptitude and corruption on the on the part of law enforcement. What? The this yeah devil I mean, you say <laughs> and well that's also a truism now is that i th i think we know that so many cases stay unsolved or take forever to lead to a resolution because there was some kind of bungling or some kind of overwhelm on the part of law enforcement yeah so this also leads to amateur sleuth types feeling that they can do better because they might not be wrong no. That they might have resources and gumption that law enforcement just can't have. Like if you're in a small town and you haven't had a murder in 15 years, you are automatically going to be over your head and probably should be calling in some kind of federal task force. But that leads to jurisdictional nightmares and territorial and uh, territorial type of behavior yeah. 
which benefits no one. But the problem with amateur sleuths is that just because you think that you know better doesn't mean that you're going to act in anyone's interest except your own. Yes. And so doorstepping family members of victims, that's something I have trouble with generally. Yeah. And I usually try to reach out to people either through social media or email letters. And only if those efforts do not succeed, do I cross my fingers and pick up the phone and cold call. And where I used to automatically treat that as on the record and sometimes ask if I could record. Now I am trying to trust my instincts in just being off the record and explaining who I am and what I do. Yeah. And why I'm approaching them and that they, if, you know, please Google me, please look up my work, please check. I'm happy to answer whatever questions you have. It requires a lot more patience and care than I think I realized in my late twenties. But every time I do a new project, I have to relearn this for myself. And every time I do a new project, I'm privy to a lot of darkness. And it's really important to just sit with people and let them tell their stories, no matter how dark, no matter how just traumatic. Sometimes they genuinely want to, they feel that they need to unburden themselves in a way that they either have never done before or feel like there is some degree of catharsis. That has a real cost. Absolutely, it does. And, you know, I have been talking a lot more about my mental health, especially lately with interviews for this anthology, because you do the kind of work that I do. And you can't escape unscathed. You can't dwell in the darkest abyss without the abyss looking back at you and trying to take take you for itself. Yeah. So not being mindful of that is really dangerous. And pretending or not acknowledging that there is an extra sensitization aspect, that you might be perpetuating additional harm, that you might be re-traumatizing people. Yeah. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do that work. Like I have spoken to sources and asked them uncomfortable questions and they lashed out and got mad. And I just kind of had to sit there and go, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I get where you're coming from. You haven't kicked me out. So that's good. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to keep sitting here and, and take all of your pain and absorb it. And I will deal with it later because I'm in no way, shape or form going to deal with it. Now I have to be sort of a conduit. Yes. But it means later when I have the space and time to reflect, then I have to run through this. Did I make a mistake? Sometimes I I will listen to the tape and check that my questions weren't unduly harmful. And thankfully, at least in in the most recent examples, they have not been. Sometimes I run these things by trusted friends just to make sure that I'm not fucking it up. Mm -hmm. And these are the kind of reflexive things that I do and I have to do and I will continue to do. And I think that may also answer the question of how can this genre do better, which is take more care, be more patient, and remember that your feelings are not the only feelings in the room. Yes, that's very true, especially if you're trying to be present as a conduit. And the cover copy echoes that in the in the cover copy for Evidence of Things Seen. It says... That the, the true crime is a byproduct of America's systemic inequalities and can be a catalyst for social change. Now, I mean, 
we've already talked about all the criticisms that true crime, true crime can receive, especially the highlighting of mostly dead, young, attractive white women. Um, and you are you are totally in a different area of that genre. Can you tell me more about how true crime is both a byproduct and a catalyst? Because this is really fascinating. I'm absolutely fascinated by this whole genre that I can't read. <laughs> my anxiety says thank you for what you do i cannot do it with you <laughs> it's totally fine i mean this is dark stuff and i feel like such it. an asshole of an interviewer being like listen i can't read your books but tell me no, but, but, but them, you girl. know the people but there's enough crossover between romance and true crime oh, i really mean there is. was a book that came out last year called love in the time of serial killers mm-hmm. which was trying to I, I I only read part of it, but I, I think the idea yeah. was this woman who has a major true crime obsession also gets obsessed with this young man who maybe she's like fearful could be a serial killer and he turns out to be a romantic interest, which um okay. Uh I read a historical with a heroine who is obsessed with true crime. It is interesting to me. I know that we're going off the tent uh, into a tangent from That's your what question. Podcasts but are. I'm <laughs> fascinated with the proliferation of protagonists in mystery novels, and to some degree romance, who have some kind of true crime obsession, who have a true crime podcast. And I don't, I don't know what to make of it. I guess it's just, again, capitalizing on the success of Serial. But it also feels like, have you listened to a true crime podcast? Have you actually, are you, like, what, do you know there are real people involved here and, and can remember this? So I think that gets at the, it can be a cause of harm. Yeah. And also that, you know, there is this splitting that I think has really come into play in the last few years where there's the good strand, which is the deeply researched, rigorously reported investigative work, be yeah. it books, podcasts, documentary, scripted series. And how does it lead to social change? I mean, because of season two of this podcast in the dark, which investigated the case of a man who had been tried six times for a multiple murder that he did not commit. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which reversed the last conviction, essentially because the choosing of judges was too racist by this particular prosecutor who was who really, really loved striking Black people from juries. So this man, Curtis Flowers, is now out uh, because absolutely they, deci- they decided that he he did not need to be tried a seventh time. So the fact that a podcast's work could go all the way to the Supreme Court and be cited, that does lead to change. And any kind of investigative work, I think there was another podcast that um, delved into the disappearance of a missing white woman named Kristen Smart in San Luis Obispo. And there had been a suspect the whole time, a man that she had known and finally, that because of this podcast, law enforcement was able to execute a search warrant on property, discovered remains, arrested the guy. I think he has been convicted now. Would that have happened without the podcast? Well, it hadn't. And it had been something like 26 years. Yeah. That so was that your does own backyard. Lead. Yeah. Right. But I'm also just more interested in how the genre can discuss bigger issues like poverty, the unhoused, how crime works in tandem with other social issues. Yes. The fact that there are these larger issues, especially with, say, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, why we are obsessed with guns, why we aspire to 
see prisoners rehabilitated, but we can't actually do that in practice. Yeah. And why are prisons still such a ridiculous hell for everybody who cycles through there? Yeah. So if we don't tackle these bigger picture issues, we can't really talk about crime in any meaningful way. And in a way, the missing white woman trope, people are attracted to that because it seems almost glamorous. It's outsized. It's something that could happen to them, but maybe not. They're often, you know, they're just storytelling elements that seem more, quote, attractive. But intimate partner violence on a larger scale or sexual assault on a larger scale, it happens so often that we have such trouble wrapping our heads around the scale of it. Yeah. So as a result, we'll just, well, let's not deal with that. But we can deal with this flashy case yeah. instead. So there's almost like a displacement that happens. And it, I think, also gets into why women in particular are attracted to true crime as a genre, because their society has instilled so much fear for women. You can't walk home alone at night. You can be catcalled wherever you go. Why were you at society- that party? Why did you right. drink? Why, why did you drink that? Yeah. Why Why are you wearing that? Don't you it's- know better? Yeah. Which- and so sexualization in society is so pervasive. Yeah. And the patriarchy is so stubborn that no wonder you can listen to a crime podcast or read a story or watch something and think either this could never happen to me or, oh, no, this could happen to me. I feel less alone in my fear. So the other strand of true crime that has sort of developed, to my mind, is more of a community-based one of people who listen to a podcast and then log onto a Facebook group or a message board and join up with other fans of this type of work and it creates commiserate. a lore, right? It's creating a yeah. lore around this one piece of media. Right. So it's not just about listening to a piece of media. It's creating a fandom around a piece of media and sometimes an anti-fandom a community, a sense of, I might find like-minded friends. It's it's like, why did we join the internet in the first place? It's because in real life, we couldn't find the people who shared our interests and we felt lonely and, and estranged. And yeah. online, we could find our people. And that's what everyone is trying to do every single day. And it doesn't matter what part of the political spectrum you are, you could be a Nazi and you're still trying to find friends. The other thing I wanted to ask you about when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is in Scoundrel, you talk about who gets to be presumed innocent and what justice looks like. And that's another whole area of true crime. 
one of the things I find so interesting about the fandoms of true crime and people I talk to, there's people who love the puzzle of it. There's people who love the lore of it. The people who are sort of very engaged by the idea of, okay, I bet, I bet I can figure this out. I bet I, I bet we can figure this out. Like Reddit was going to solve who did the Boston marathon bombing. No, yeah. Well, Reddit. Lo- that worked out real well. That I think worked it led out. to a libel suit. Yeah. That was, that was a bit of a problem. But there's this sort of attraction to, I'm going to figure this out. And then if I, if I Google, justice will be done. It's a very low barrier to entry engagement with the puzzle. And then there's also a very judgmental aspect because women especially, we are taught to judge ourselves against other women almost as a class, as a safety measure. Oh, well, I didn't wear a skirt that short. Oh, I didn't go out past nine. Oh, I wouldn't do that. That won't happen to me because I wouldn't do that. Then there's also people, like you said, who look at that and go, wow, that could have been me. Our horrible patriarchal injustice is ever-present and always a threat to me. I think it's generally really dangerous to look at something and say that couldn't happen to you because you have no idea what can happen at any given point. It's a similar thing with grifting, which is, of course, another big strain of crime stories. And to my mind, one of the great American pastimes. Oh, so true. So like that and white supremacy. These are these what these are what underpin American society. But with grifting, people are always (laughs) thinking they're not going to fall for it. Yeah, I'm always thinking I'm going to fall for it, and I just I just feel like I absolutely I I don't know what I've fallen for. I don't know who is going to be cold reading me at any given point and finding my weaknesses so that they can grift me. And it doesn't mean that I have to be hyper vigilant about it. It just means that. I never want to presume that I'm above anybody yeah. in terms of falling for some kind of scam or grift or, you know, bad relationship or, or whatnot that, you know, everybody, it's it, it can happen to anyone and everyone. It's just a matter of which circumstances lead to this happening. Yeah. And the, 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 the idea of that much chaos and lack of control can be very terrifying. Very, very When in scary. fact, it's better to just surrender to it. But yeah. I had to, you know, that's something you can't teach anybody. No, And certainly not. if you would, if 20 something me was on this podcast talking about it, I'd be like, I'm in control of everything. Like, I know exactly oh. what I'm doing. I've got this all planned out. It's going to be oh fine. My God. Yeah. My life is like just following all these beats. No, it followed none of them. No beats, none, zero. Mm-hmm. Nope. What led you into the case inside? scoundrel because that was more of a focus about a very specific case it didn't end up where i where i think you thought it was going to be is that right did i remember you saying like wow this took this took a, this took a wild turn that i didn't expect or am i misremembering <laughs> i had finished the piece that became the real lolita in it was published in november of 2014 mm-hmm. and it was for a canadian publication called hazlitt and so i had known about a similar story involving the writer norman mailer and how he befriended this prisoner named Jack Henry Abbott. Abbott would write him from prison about this other prisoner, Gary Gilmore, who was the subject of Mailer's book, The Executioner's Song. That didn't work out so well for Mailer because he, along with various literati buddies at the New York Review of Books and at Random House, helped um, advocate for Abbott. He was sprung from prison. He was paroled. He published a book of his writings in the in the belly of the beast. And on the very day that a rave New York Times review ran, he was being arrested for the murder of an actor at a bar after getting into a fight. And so Abbott spent the rest of his life in prison. He died there. And Mailer took a lot of flack for this story. And how how dare you advocate for this murderer when he's just going to get out and kill again? Speaking of grifting, yeah. Right. So that was a story that I had known. Right. 
And then in the process of just looking up cases on internet rabbit holes, I read about this other murderer named Edgar Smith and how William F. Buckley Jr. advocated for his release. And I thought, why don't I know more about this story? So I pitched it as a, as the next feature I was going to write for Hazlitt. They went for it. But I quickly realized that this was way too big for a magazine story. There were just too many elements between the murder of Victoria Zelinsky, the 15-year-old that Smith killed, the advocating for his innocence, Buckley's involvement, and the fact that certain sources, particularly women that Smith had been married to or involved with, wouldn't speak with me on the record as long as he was still alive. Because in one instance involving a second ex-wife, he was essentially cyber-stalking her from prison. Oh, through. good Lord. He had he had somebody on the outside who was running essentially investigative searches and she would get weird stuff in the mail and threatening letters. And she just was like, I can't, I can't deal with you oh, uh, and wow. I can't deal with this. And even I was also had a brief correspondence with him and from that, and it's in the book, but it became clear to me that he was not going to tell me anything meaningful and I didn't want, I just didn't want to engage yeah, he was. It, it, so I essentially had to wait it out. And then I was finishing the first draft of the real Lolita. And periodically, I would run searches to, at the California Department of Corrections, their database just to yeah. make sure was he still there? Yep. Was he not? And then it, I got an error message. And I thought, well, I better start making phone calls. And a very grumpy person at DOC did confirm that he had died. So I thought, okay, I'm going to hold on to this information for a bit because I have to finish the actual book I'm under contract for. I mean, I guess. But I did tell certain people like the son of the prosecutor and this ex-wife that I mentioned and a a few other people. And obviously they were glad for the news, but, you know, and and the ex-wife did finally agree to at least speak with me off the record. Right. And then she eventually just stopped communicating, which I get. Yeah. But- I had a conversation when the obits finally landed that fall. I was waiting for edits and I called my agent and said, So I've been, this is the project that I've been wanting to do. And how quickly do I need to prepare a proposal? He's like, ASAP. <laughs> so I wrote a first draft of a proposal. Like it was like downloading it from my brain. Yeah. And it took like 24 hours. And then it took several months to revise and go through notes. But it sold to my existing publisher of Echo uh, the following spring. Nice. So the the real Lolita comes out in September of 2018. I'm on tour for a while. And when things settle down around December of 18, that's when I get to work right. on Scoundrel. And by that point, the reason I had known it was a book is because in the process of yet another internet rabbit hole, I discovered this archive that belonged to a book editor at Knopf named Sophie Wilkins, who to me became the soul of the book. She was this fascinating emigre from Vienna. She'd been married multiple times. She was a PhD candidate at Columbia. And she became an editor at Knopf in her 40s. Right. And was really having trouble getting traction for a lot of the projects she wanted to work on. She was a very high-spirited, but that was the kind of figure she was, like super fun to be around, but also just deeply, deeply too much. Yeah. And I could relate. In a lot of ways. I mean, she was someone who sometimes sprinkled Yiddishisms in her letters. I thought, oh, yeah, I know. I know this woman. Yeah. She had written Buckley, who had written a piece for Esquire on this case, because he had come to believe erroneously 
that Edgar Smith was innocent, that he had not killed this 15-year-old girl, Victoria Zielinski, in Bergen County, New Jersey, in 1957. Wrote a whole piece about it. Sophie Wilkins writes in and says, I want to donate to the defense fund. And also, based on these letters that you quote, is Edgar writing a book? It takes a couple of years, but finally he's like, I am writing a book. Buckley puts him in touch with Sophie. They start a correspondence. And that's all I know when I first go into the archives. I'm just thinking, oh, I'm sure I'll just find regular correspondence between a book editor and her author. Right. Yeah, of course. Instead, I find what what essentially was smut. Oh, dear And I'm sitting God. in the Rare Brooks and Manuscript Library of Columbia University sometime in February of 2016 as I'm trying not to scream because of what I'm reading and going, this is not what I expected between a book editor and her author. Please do not let anyone be reading over my shoulder at this moment. And also, <laughs> has anyone even read this correspondence? And the answer was no. It was oh, donated without. Why she kept these letters is mystifying. That's a, I, that's a, that's a mystery right there. I think she either forgot or maybe had some secret hopes that somebody would go spelunking and figure out how to write about her. Yep. And there's so much still to write about Sophie because she translated this epic book, The Manual Without Qualities by Robert Musil. She had an extended correspondence with Saul Bellow. She was friends with other translators. Um, And because of this whole Edgar Smith stuff, she actually became really good friends with William F. Buckley. So it wasn't just that I was looking at correspondence between her and the and the murderer. I was looking at correspondence between him and Buckley and Buckley and Sophie Wilkins. And there was this such a rich trove of primary sources that that became the backbone for Scoundrel. Wow. Because this is a really persuasive person convincing individual after individual. And obviously the techniques that you're going to use with Buckley Jr. are not the same as you're going to use with this editor. I mean, no, which is why the letters between Edgar and Bill are very different than the ones between Edgar and Sophie, because there is an element of persuasion, but he he does it differently. Like with Buckley, he was trying to almost mimic how Buckley wrote. Yeah. And with Sophie, he was trying to be more romantic slash sexual. And he could tell that she was lonely. So yeah. he would kind of play into that. It, 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 you know, speaking of cold reading, I think there's an element of that too, that you get somebody's letter and you think, well, how can I read this? Yeah. And I guess I, I think that's why I was so turned off by him because I could tell, oh, this is the technique you're trying with me. Like in the first letter he wrote back to me, I think because my address that I used was a PO box in Brooklyn, I wasn't going to give him my actual address. I can't said, greetings, me. greetings from Brooklyn. I, I remember Pat, passing through there while I was on the run. I was like, why are you telling me this? Like, this is not normal correspondence. And yeah, that's a big, hey, I noticed the return address. But, I and know also, hey, are. I want attention. And clearly nobody's written to me in a really long time. Yeah. And I need to fish for information about this individual. And I'm going to flatter you. And I'm going to, and I was like, nah. And that was why by the end, I could just tell I wasn't going to get anything meaningful out of him. He certainly wasn't going to tell me I wasn't going to ask him if he had killed Vicky, mm-hmm. the teenage girl, because everybody else had asked him. He'd given conflicting answers. Yeah. He would eventually come really close to killing another woman. And in, during that trial, he admitted to it and he gave a version of it. And the one that I landed on, which he talked about in a parole hearing, was when they asked him why he killed Vicky, he said, I was angry. And I said, you know... Usually the simplest explanation is the one that makes the most sense. 
Yeah. And certainly if you're angry because a girl that you know has resisted your advances and, and, you know, is trying desperately to get out of your car and you're already rage stricken because you've lost your job and you hate your life and you have a three month old that you have to support. And I later, I learned this after the book was published that when his first wife came home after giving birth to their daughter, he had totally wrecked their trailer because he was so irresponsible. And she and her friend had to clean it up. <gasps> oh my gosh. I dropped my jaw so <laughs> fast hearing this from a friend of his first wife who got in touch with me after Scoundrel came out. And I just like, you what? What? But that is the level of irresponsibility that he had and just a lack of care towards anybody. God, and that tells you about character. Yeah. And that is a person who can say, well, I just got angry. And yeah. their understanding of what anger is, is not necessarily anyone else's understanding of what anger is. And also that his understanding of how to be remorseful is just never going to hit the mark because they can't. They they no. genuinely cannot understand how to atone or make amends or just stop causing, you know, and to really reckon with what they have done. Yeah. And so there was a long piece in the New York Review of Books, which was very strange because it essentially dinged me for not having enough sympathy for the murderer. Yeah, I know. Uh, it was written by a, what? a man who is currently incarcerated for murder. And it was a very fascinating piece. If, Wait, if you it was want to written check it by out. somebody who's currently incarcerated for murder and they were miffed that you didn't have enough sympathy for the guy who gets angry and wrecks people. Yes, because they did not understand that oh. what I was writing about in Scoundrel was misogyny and how it cr creates perpetual harm. <sighs> Sarah, what a shanda. <laughs> I tell you what. <laughs> it was a fascinating piece. But Did you just I, read that and be like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you for real right now? Well, <laughs> but I guess the way I addressed my are you fucking kidding me impulses was to write a letter to the New York Review, which is the only place that you can legitimately write a letter in response to a review yeah because they expect to have that kind of conversation in yeah. in the letters page yeah and what happened was there was a whole back page devoted to letters because of that review which was intense and it wasn't just you who was like now hold the fuck on a minute here I mean, I wrote in just saying, well, I get where you're coming from. We all, uh, I certainly aspire to believe in prison abolition. And I think that at the very least, significant reforms have to be made to the criminal legal system. There, that's absolutely true. But saying that, but pinning that on Edgar Smith, who is such an anomaly, and I wrote about him as an anomalous figure. Yeah. And as a cautionary tale, not really for criminal justice reform, but for, assigning belief to a particular seemingly educated white ma white guy yeah this hat guy as opposed to all the other people of varying demographics and socioeconomic status who never get that benefit of the doubt yep and also all of the women and those who are identifying as female who are harmed assaulted and in some instances murdered they don't get that benefit of the doubt either yeah so since my project was misogyny, to have that point missed was very interesting. Our culture glamorizes serial killers. This wasn't, it didn't have to be this way. For many years, if 
people committed uh, murders in a serial fashion. There was fascination, there was reporting, but there wasn't the sense of let's elevate them to some kind of superhero type of archetype, yeah. which I think really began in the 80s. And particularly, I don't want to put all the blame on coverage of Ted Bundy, but certainly oh, a lot of it. Bundy and then Dahmer, like the right. the Netflix series was like, and here's this hot guy, Jeffrey, check him out. Like, what yeah, the hell well, is happening? What- Ryan Murphy is a weird, weird person. And I'm not, I I don't understand his decision making. And I think that the criticisms, especially levied by family members of Dahmer's victims are 100% warranted, if not more. Oh, absolutely. But I think one of the reasons we do glamorize serial killers is one of the reasons that serial killers have become archetypes that we look at them as, I don't know, like golems or boogeymen or Golem is a really good way to describe it. Yeah. yeah this supernatural, that, otherworldly thing that we cannot that, possibly but, control. Right. But that society created. Yeah. You can't have a golem without a person who created yeah. them. They don't they do not exist without the society that they function in. Yeah. So that when you lose control of them, and what is Frankenstein but a golem story? Yeah. Um, so of course we think of serial killers as monsters. But what that does is it Let's them off the hook. Yeah, it flattens them. They're humans. It's very interesting to me the way that we sort of turn serial killers into these sort of superhero figures, whereas their victims become disposable. They become... They become non-playing characters. They become... Yes, they're exactly. They're like NPCs in a video game and they dissolve as soon as they're dead. Even the victims of Jack the Ripper were like, oh, they were all sex workers. Well, Right. Well, no, they weren't because if you read Hallie Rubenhold's The Five, which is a brilliant brilliant reverse engineering yep and she's people still get mad at her for this book which i find unbelievable but it was so revelatory that she did the work to try to figure out who these women were yep and i think maybe two of them were sex workers and the other ones were just economically disadvantaged women who were just trying struggling and trying to feed their kids and live their lives i think the discovery of a suspect in the gilgo beach case also underscores another big tension in true crime which is that we love unsolved cases because as long as they remain unsolved, there's this mythic element. There's a sense yeah. of they are larger than life. They are beyond humanity. And then when they're caught, That's they're just, just some random creepy some guy, sh- some schlubby guy you can watch on YouTube. What? That guy? Or when Dennis Rader, who is responsible for the BTK killings in Wichita, when he was caught, and I remember this very vividly. Because I thought, oh, this guy's never going to get caught. And then he did. Because why? He got mad that his cases were being covered and he wasn't getting attention. So he started sending letters and notes to um, media, to newspapers and TV stations. Yep. And one of the CDs that he sent had metadata that led him back to the church where he worked. Yep. It's like, you know, we we want to think that these people, usually men, are such masterminds. And really, they're they're just... Idiots who haven't been caught by other idiots. Yeah. I'm they're sorry just, to say. There's, it's always hubris, always hubris that trips you up. So much hubris. I always ask this question, what books do you want to tell people about? Because I am at heart a book podcast. The only reason this is always nettlesome for me to answer is that I write for the New York Times Book Review. And so I can never really talk about what yeah, books that I'm is a, that potentially is a reviewing challenge. for them. Yep. So... With crime and mystery fiction, what I can do is talk about books that I definitely can't review because they're by my friends. Fabulous. As I'm 
As I'm speaking with you, we are a few days out from the publication of Prom Mom by Laura Lipman, whom I've known forever, and she's one of the best writers in the genre that we have. I read it in one sitting. I swear to God, the last twist, like, I don't normally do this. I I know all the twists. I did not see it coming. And I was like, holy shit, what is, what is this? It's a novel that deals with COVID in a way that is organic and natural and doesn't feel forced, which is also kind of amazing. Megan Abbott's Beware the Woman also is a one sitting read. It's very claustrophobic. It's set in the Upper Peninsula. It is about a pregnant, newly married woman who goes to visit her father-in-law in the UP. And well, it's got a Rosemary's Baby meets mm-hmm. Rebecca vibe. So you know that things are not going to end well at all. Probably the best nonfiction book in crime that I read this year was Genealogy of a Murder by Lisa Belkin. And so that book is about a case where a guy is let out of prison and he ends up killing a police officer in 1960. And when he was in prison, he had worked with this uh, psychologist who was Belkin's uh, stepdad. So that's how she knew of the story. But what she decided to do was go back to the beginning. So it's essentially a genealogical excavation of the families of three men. Oh, So the first thing I thought of reading it is, this is how you do investigative genetic genealogy in a literary way. Yeah. And I was, when my review ran, I was waiting and waiting for other people to make the same comparison and no one did. Oh. So I was shocked. Well, thank you so much for doing this and taking the time to talk to me. This was such a blast and a pleasure and so great. Please tell people where to find you if you wish to be found. You can find me at my website at sarahweinman.com. You can find me at Sarah Weinman on Instagram, at Sarah W on the dying carcass that is Twitter, and and at Sarah Weinman on Blue Sky, which is still invite only. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you again to Sarah Weinman for hanging out with me and for understanding that I can't read any of her books. I feel like such a schmuck, but it's true. If you would like to find Sarah, I will have links to all of the places where she is. And I will, of course, link to all of the books that she has written, which I'm sure are fabulous. But did I mention I can't read them because I can't read them? (laughs) I always end with a bad joke. And this week is no exception. This joke comes from Bull in our Discord. And it's terrible. And I love it so much. Where does a pirate get their hooks? Give up. Where does a pirate get their hooks? At the second hand store. (laughs) So bad. I love it. Thank you, Bull. Come hang out with us in the Discord. The jokes are just dreadful, and I love them all. On behalf of everyone here, wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend. We will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts. Bye-bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.